Hello and welcome to Rear View, the show where we get to chat to the fascinating people from the motoring universe, learning how they got to where they are today. I'm Andrew, and this is episode 19. And I'm delighted to say hello and welcome to my guest, Robin Brown. Straight away, I'm going to ask Robin to introduce himself to you, as he's going to do a much better job than I can. Well, I'm Robin Brown. Um, as um, you've already alluded to very nicely with that wonderful introduction, um, I'm a, a sometime motoring journalist, and uh, I'm also a lecturer in journalism these days. I've been in the car industry for about 10 years, and I have been slowly kind of very, very slowly moving out of it for the last few years, but I've still got a foot in the door. Is it ex-podcaster, or is it hiatus podcaster? Um, what, did, what do you say with uh, That's a good question. Um, yeah, I, I did petrol pod for a while with Gav, Major Gav, as you may know, my uh, petrol blog. Um, I, I don't think we'd ever, I don't think we ever agreed to stop, um, but I don't think we're on a hiatus either. So I don't know. I don't really know. We've recorded one that hasn't been out yet. Um, <laughs> There's more? Oh, no. Come on, Gavin, you can't do well, that. Well, I think that I edited the last one, um, uh, but I don't think Gav has the time and I haven't had the time. But there is another one in the wings. It'd be like one of those kind of missing episodes of Steptoe or Doctor Who that turns up 40 years later. Um, <laughs> Digitally enhanced. Found in someone's basement in Ghana or somewhere like that. Because <laughs> <laughs> they've got into your Dropbox. Well, well who, yeah. I mean, who, who knows? Who knows? Maybe there'll be a hard copy on a, an old date track or something like that. It may see the light yes. of day one of these days. You never know. You still, as you said, you've still got a toe in in the uh, in the pond of the motoring universe mm. uh, which is great but before we get into how you got to exactly where you are now i'd like to go back in the mists of time to find out the cliche question that is that i i that you'll find throughout there are lots of cliche <laughs> questions because i'm not very imaginative but um when did you first get interested in cars uh and did anyone uh, help you along with that? It's a good question. Um, and I, it, it, yes, it is cliched, but you know, the, I think cliched questions are probably the best questions. That's why they keep being asked. So it's fair enough. Thank you. You can, you can, you can stay <laughs> on as a guest. <laughs> I, I probably got in the cars when I was, I don't know, five or six or seven. Uh, and I think what's fascinating about that age, and some people grow out of it and some people don't, motoring journalists normally don't, is that you become fascinated with lists of things and statistics and you know, comparing things and stuff like that. So at, at whatever age that was, I don't know, maybe six, seven, eight, something like that, I could have told you what every car on the road was and I, I could have told you a lot about it. I wouldn't have understood what I was saying, but <laughs> I could ID a car from you know 100 paces and I still can. Um, you know, any car of that vintage, all over it. <laughs> I wasn't, I was not encouraged in it. My dad was a steel worker and is a brilliant engineer and, and you know, can, can fix anything. I just, I'm going to jump forward a little bit. I hope it's not a massive spoiler I'm giving away, but I owned a Ford Puma for a while and um, the car was uh, at my parents' house. And I said, can we have a look at it? There's something wrong with it. We got it up on some. I can't remember. We, we got the car jacked up, basically, and got underneath it, and the heat shield was kind of falling off. And my dad went outside, and uh, he looked around on the pavement. I said, what the hell's he do? He's finally gone mad. But he just looked around, and he found uh, a tin pan <laughs> in the gutter up the road. And he came back, and he cut a piece out, and uh, he, he formed some sort of clip, which just locked this heat shield back into place. So 
you know, the man's an absolute bloody genius. But weirdly, as far as he's concerned, you know, he sees machinery for the value of what it does. So he's very much a getting you from A to B kind of guy and has no wider interest in in cars beyond, you know, so he quite likes how they work. So no one encouraged me with cars. And it wasn't until I got a job in the car industry that I started to kind of rekindle my love and almost kind of remembered, you know, that that I used to love cars and I'd forgotten about that when adolescence came along and suddenly other things seemed to be a lot more interesting to me. That (laughs) continued for some time up until 2006 it was, so over 10 years ago now, and I got a job as the editor of a website in the car industry and sort of rediscovered all the stuff that I used to love and thought, why did I ever go away from cars? Um, So that was fortuitous really because I rediscovered something that I did have an interest in and has been very fulfilling over the years. Obviously, uh, at the time, was it you were saying about the stats and you could recognise cars? Was it a case of almost like top trumps? It probably was, although I I didn't actually play top trumps. But I just uh, I don't know what what fascinated me about them. Whether it was um, I don't know knowing the relationship between cars, so what cars are in what sector, the names of cars, perhaps. Um, where they were made. I think it probably was that kind of thing where, you know, as a youngster, I was fascinated with cricket stats as well. And as you know, you know... um, That's not a bad thing to be interested in. No, no secret (laughs) of my cricket love. But that for me was all about statistics and things like that. And like, what's David Gower's batting average and things like that. So it's not a huge intuitive leap to... You know, what what is the 0-62 sprint time of an Austin Allegro... Uh, (laughs) That's the thing. <laughs> Couldn't, don't ask me what it is. <laughs> Probably something like 25 seconds, I would have thought. I was going to say, did they make 60? <laughs> well, cheap, cheap jibe, but having driven one, yeah. uh, I feel I'm in a position where I can make the, that. The first drive I drove was an Allegro, and my my God, it was such a difficult car to drive. I, I say this to people sometimes, you can't imagine how difficult cars were to drive if they were made you know, any late, any earlier than 1990. I learned oh, to yeah. drive in a Maestro, and good grief. <laughs> no power steering, the, the, the most sensitive accelerator you have ever come across. <laughs> Brakes you had to destroy to even slow to a stop from crawling. I mean, so hard to drive those cars. And, you know, kids these days, they don't know the born. Quite. But in, on, that, um, on that front note... Really, there aren't bad cars now. No, I think that's fair. To say. From that point of view, I mean, there's there's different, you know, there's there's different qualities, and there's things that they will do. Cars will do better. Certain cars will do better than others. But I don't think there's bad cars now. They all can, you know, you can all get in one of them, and it will take you somewhere. Absolutely, that this kind of the minimum level of what is acceptable in cars has has shot up massively, and even over the ten years that I've been in the industry, um, I mean, there were bad cars when I started driving cars for a living, um, and you know, there, there are there are cars that are very very uninteresting and boring and kind of utilitarian these days, but I don't think there are any bad cars to be fair. And it's it's kind of made motoring journalism quite hard, I think, because I think the job of a motoring journalist is to find something interesting and useful and valuable to say about the cars that they drive. And 
you, you, you drive cars, and I'm sure you know, you can drive a lot of cars and just think, I have no idea what to say about this. You know, it's fine. Yeah, you, you start, you're, you're looking for splitting hairs and then you sound petty. Exactly. And, it, and it's, it's that balance of uh, what, you said, what you were saying there is, is giving something informative, um, but useful and, and trying, to, trying to make it meaningful for someone who perhaps isn't uh, particularly car nerdy as well. I mean, that's the mm. big thing. Because you know most of this, most of this country, um, well, you know most most of the world are, are not really bothered about cars to the level that we are. Yeah. They just want to be told, well, what's the one that's going to be best for me in my situation, type thing. And it's it is interesting to see the different ways in which uh, journalists try and get that message across. Yeah, and that that's where the the, the skill of you know good motoring journalists is evident if 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 they can find a way to do that and. You know, it's difficult. There was a certain point in my career where I was probably going on two or three launches a week, um, and you just become inured to it, and it, it kind of grinds you down a bit, and it's very easy to lose the love of it. And you can see a lot of pretty dead-eyed journalists in um, um, airports, you know, just kind of hating their <laughs> lives, really, because it's all I've been doing for 30, 40, or 50 years, and it's almost like they look for someone to put them out of their misery and stop inviting them, but... Um, it can be difficult. It's like any job. And you know, we were talking earlier about how it's still a job at the end of the day. Um, so yeah. to, to be able to find something interesting and useful and something that you know is useful to your readers is, is a really important skill. And then that's before you even drill down into, are you writing for fleet? Are you writing for private buyers? Well, are, are you reviewing volume cars? In which case it's all about Isofix and boot space and fuel economy or you know you're reviewing hot hatches in which case it's about something completely different or for fours yeah. or you know you you know and, and is, is your publication or your your um yeah your publication is as good a word as any but is your publication about entertainment or is it about consumerism mm-hmm. and it's you know there's there's you know there's some places out there you can see are fighting those internal battles where they haven't decided mm. you know we are one thing or the other and sometimes the the message that comes out is a bit garbled because of it so uh, it it's not it's not easy well this this actually brings me on to a question I was going to uh, ask you anyway um but what do you think and I'm and I'm going to use the term writing for content creation here just just to be easier sure. because the, there are many different forms now with the the digital side of things what what i mean you've you've mentioned there uh, of getting a message across but what do you think makes good writing <laughs> uh, as as you teach in these things um this would be uh, probably <laughs> okay. if any of your students are listening they need to pay attention right now but what what do you think uh, makes good writing? Well, that's a $64 million question, really, isn't it? I know, I'm taking notes, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, God, don't ask me. Um, I think something that I've always tried to do in my writing is to find and something I talk about in when I'm teaching journalism is what's, what's the angle? And, you know, sometimes I feel people are a bit confused by what this means. And, and what I mean by it is, what is the single most important, interesting thing that you can say about this car or, or whatever it is that hasn't already been said? Um, and it's about, so you've got to really explore something, I think. And I'm a very active 
you know, driver of cars. Um, when I'm reviewing cars, I'm thinking about them a lot and I drive them a lot. And sometimes it's not immediately obvious and I might pour over press releases. But I'll do this until I find something that I believe is true and interesting and useful. And I will write or I will think or I will drive until I find that thing. And there's all sorts of, you know, things that you could say that 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 equals good writing. But that's, for me, is the single most important thing where you might leave an impression with someone where they think that was useful or that's interesting or I've not thought of that before or something like that. And I think that's the kind of writing where you might be noticed just for the quality of your writing, which is a much underrated thing. And um, you know, Jeremy Clarkson, just to pick one out of the... Just a random name. Yeah, is <laughs> a great writer when he can be bothered. And if you read mm. his better work, he's absolutely found that thing, you know, that kernel of truth in something that people can relate to. And when they read it, will go, yes, yes, I understand that. I've thought that before. And... I think that's what you've got to do. You've got to stand out because especially with the way the internet has developed, we've been flooded with content. And, you know, 20 years ago, you had to prove, you had to demonstrate to people, your peers, your employers, whoever it was, your readers, that you were a good writer and they had to approve of what you were doing in order to make a living out of it. But, you know, now there aren't any gatekeepers and that can be a good thing and it can be a bad thing. Um, so I think it's hard to tell these days what makes for good writing and you know there's some people who are very bad writers who are probably millionaires or have you know um a hundred thousand people following their social media channels or whatever it is and there are some very good writers who you know probably read by a tiny coterie of people who are probably very appreciative but no wider than that and it's become a huge kind of ball of things these days as to what determines a good writer i think and we live in a strange times when you know people may not necessarily agree on what good writing is because people don't agree on what facts are anymore so <laughs> yes got, got very philosophical without really meaning to there but <laughs> uh, that's this is why we don't we don't podcast anymore <laughs> just probably hours and hours of irrelevant material that gav had to uh, reduce down to 30 minutes um, no, but that's the point of this. The point of this is the conversation, and this is this is exactly why I wanted to bring you on, mm. um, because I want to because I know that um, one you feel strongly about it, but two you've got such a experience, and not just experience of doing it, but you're teaching people as well. Mm. Um, and I and I I think this is uh, an important thing because as you say there aren't any gatekeepers. I mean, because if there were, Merchant Podcast probably wouldn't exist mm. for one. Um, and, and because, um, you know, the likes of yourself and Gav doing Petrol Pod, it helped push Alan and me to come out with a podcast um, because you selfishly stopped. Um, so <laughs> that's, that's one of the main reasons is nobody was producing a podcast we wanted to listen to. How dare they? They should have known that. <laughs> nice to hear. Equally, I mean, this 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 leads nicely on to the, another question I wanted to ask you is, what do you think of the current state of automotive content? Mm. You're probably asking the wrong man because I'll be honest, I don't I don't really read any of it anymore. Um, that's, people are probably dropping their bacon sandwiches all around the country upon hearing that. But um, I kind of felt like I, I'm kind of, I think I mentioned before, I'm kind of transitioning out of the industry really more and more. 
I'm doing work in higher education or I'm doing other freelance things, which means I'm not writing about cars as much as I used to. So I, I just don't have the time to spend, you know, to devote to the car industry that I used to. I used to find a lot that I liked, um, you know, and it's maybe five years since I've been a dedicated consumer of you know, all the magazines and you're know, subscribed to some magazines and I'd stand in WH Smith's and, and read a lot of them. And I had, uh, you know, God knows how many subscriptions to newsletters and things like that. But mm. um, you know, there's only so much time and I, I kind of had to devote it to something else. I, I found myself less and less interested by motoring journalism. And I, I think it's a kind of a factor of the market. And you can see this in a lot of journalism. It's kind of homogenized it. And th- there's probably a fairly narrow recipe for magazines and websites to be successful. And beyond that, they might be fringe but interesting. And it, it goes back to, you know, things which aren't widely read or aren't widely listened to. Um, and if people don't find that their stuff is widely read or listened to, they tend to stop doing it. So you have this kind of homogenization of content, which means that I don't find any very interesting. And it got to a point where... I don't want to mention names of magazines, but mm. the weekly or fortnightly magazines, you could predict what everything that they had to say about a car before you read it. And I just thought, what what's the point of this anymore? Why am I reading this kind of stuff? Well, I, I mean, I am looking to get um, some magazine editors on because I think if you uh, if you are a magazine, automotive magazine editor at the moment, that seems to be one of the most, from the outside, looks like one of the most stressful jobs. <laughs> There is in that in in the industry because you've got to balance uh, getting income, mm. getting content out that you want people to read, getting advertisers to come on board, yet still maintaining some integrity on what you produce that people who read it go, yeah, okay, I I, I trust what you're saying, so you know this means something to me, mm. uh, and it just seems such a stressful thing yeah. forgetting the costs of getting you know people going here there and everywhere and all that you know but just just that whole balance thing seems so hard yeah i mean i i've i've edited magazines uh no, i haven't edited print magazines in motoring but you know elsewhere and i i can empathize and i can sympathize you know i don't want to bash people for doing their jobs it's it's a difficult job and the, the way that the industry has changed over the last 10 years has has just ramped up the pressure um, to to churn out content, but churn out stronger content and content that is clearly. I mean, I'm using the word content, you know, to describe writing. You know, and that, that's a horrible mm. thing to 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 describe writing as, which, which should be a, a sort of wonderful, enjoyable thing. But um, I found it to be less so the more time I spent editing the website that I used to do. Um, so you know, I just stopped doing it. <laughs> Because I thought there's got to be something else out there, and um, I I never <laughs> looked back, and I never regretted, you know, not doing that stuff anymore. Because it was it was killing, you know, my love of um, motoring and cars, and um, I suspect that you know a lot of motoring journals could probably empathise with that a little bit. Um, you know, fundamentally, we all love cars at the end of the day, and it's it's not going to go away. But um, I'm glad now that I can have a relationship with the world of motoring where I can still appreciate it without, mm. you know, sort of just having to do it all the time, which yeah. is the enemy of creativity, really. Uh, well, you mentioned then that you've done editing. Uh, a question I like to ask anyone who does 
mention that they they edit or they have edited. Uh, and it's a bit similar to the, the previous question about writing, but what do you think makes good editing? <laughs> um, I'm- Again, I'm taking notes. Uh, there will be a 74 emailed course later to people who wish to subscribe. I'm joking. Uh- <laughs> 50-50. No, 60-40, anyway. <laughs> um, no problem. <laughs> It's. A, I'm a, assuming we're talking about editing as in the the whole thing, so not not just editing a you know a particular article, but how how you how you conceive of it. Well, editing an article and then um, editing in the grander mm. side. So so editing an article. What when you do it? What what are you looking for? What do you? How do you approach it? Um, when I'm editing an article, I'm looking at structure probably more than anything, uh, and I'm. Structure works differently depending on the kind of article you're writing. In, in news, we might talk about what's the lead and what's the most important thing that happens in a story. And then you talk about your five Ws, what, where, when, you know, how, all of that kind of stuff. I can never remember what they are, so I always avoid saying what those five Ws are. <laughs> but the, you know, the kind of stuff you read in your daily newspapers, you know, so a, a man has, you know, been arrested after, you know, bloody, bloody, bloody. You, you can see examples of this in newspapers all the time. Mm-hmm. What I tend to write more of and have done throughout my career is reviews and features and that the structure of them is completely different. Um, and it's important to have a, an impactful introduction, I think, but not necessarily that kind of giving away everything. So you can tease people a little bit more. And Clarkson's very good at this, actually. You never really know what his articles are about until you get about 10 paragraphs in. And it, he kind of teases you and he sort of is quite provocative and I admire his writing, if if not, you know, the content of it, necessarily <laughs> all the time. Um, so I, I look at structure a lot, really, and I look at those kind of, you know, killer hooks, you know, what, what's the most important thing in the article and what are nice turns of phrase and what are nice observations and things like that. And it's it's something that comes with practice. It's like anything, a big metaphor that I always use when I'm teaching is that writing is like playing the piano and you wouldn't expect to listen to someone talk about playing the piano for 45 minutes and then expect to be able to play the piano. You have to practice it every single day. And you only get better at writing by practicing. Um, Reading helps as well, of course. But um, you just got to do it all the time. And then you you slowly get better and you refine it and you see things that work in other people's writing and you think, I'm going to steal that because – you know, at heart, all good writing is stolen from somewhere else. I think. Well, do do you um, just just on that when when you're teaching, do you advise people to? Because um, I've always found this a difficult, um, almost a bit of a conundrum. I know particular writers I like, and this isn't just necessarily motoring, but there's particular writers I like, and I like to read their stuff. I like the style. I feel very comfortable reading it, and I'm I'm comfortable that the 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 story they're going to take me along mm. is going to be a, an interesting one, but it's expanding your viewpoint and making sure that you're continuing to explore. Sorry, this is a bit more just general education thing here. <laughs> explore and continue to explore and try different writers, different areas uh, of what content is being produced to try, just see if there's any influences like there that you were saying there that some, you know, oh I like that bit I'll nick that mm. I'll try and use that in an, in some articles I do and stuff like that do you uh, encourage your students to do that um I, I yeah I probably do um I encourage them to to read as as, as widely as they can really because I think it's 
conversely, as more writing has become available, it it somehow seems harder for people to to just sit down and read. And I think my I see this with my students are bombarded with. So there's a lot of noise, isn't there? There is a lot of noise. Yeah, and um, they, they all have notifications turned on on the phone. So oh god, it's very hard to maintain <laughs> anyone's concentration when. Um, they're pinging, you know, emails and WhatsApps and Snapchats and what have you to each other constantly, and uh, it kind of worry what what it does to people's minds to to exist in this constant state of kind of semi distraction. But um, I mean, I I like my students to read as widely as possible, and I'm you know, I'm an autodidact. I taught myself how to write, how to be a journalist. Um, I never did any qualifications in it. And it the only qualifications that existed when I got into the industry were NCTJs, and I could see the benefit of them, and, and there's certainly a value to doing them. I just happened not to do them, and I kind of taught myself how to write, basically by not copying the words of what other people were doing, but by kind of looking at the way people wrote and and kind of taking on board the lessons from that, I guess. So, you know, it, it can be done. You can teach yourself how to write by reading a lot and I don't think there's any great kind of mystery to it um having said that doing a journalism degree won't do you any harm at all um in case any of my students are listening <laughs> <laughs> yeah and to, to go back to your the sort of the other part of your question how to edit you know an, an entity um I think it's something we were talking about before I think you've got to have an idea of what you want to do with it um, and if you don't, then you're just kind of churning out words and there's got to be a focus to it and there's got to be a drive to something and you've got to have a, a pretty clear idea of who your audience is. I teach magazine journalism amongst other things and I always say you've got to have three elements to a magazine. How does it look? You know, What's the content in it and who's your audience? And those three things have got to have um, this kind of symbiotic relationship with each other. And if one of them's out of step, your magazine won't work. And the same thing really applies for websites as well. So I think it's just important to know what you want out of it, understand who your audience is and what they want. And then you, know, you can get into things like pace and structure and stuff like that and magazines and texture. And these are all sort of jargon words, which I use in my teaching. But I think you've got to have a, you've got to have a vision. If you don't have a vision of something that's interesting and different and valuable, again, then don't bother or, you know, get a better idea, essentially. Yeah, why Why are you doing it? Why are you producing the thing you're producing? What's the What's the reason you started to do it? Mm. And what are you hoping to pass on? Absolutely, yeah. What, what's the point of it, I think, is important. Why, why are you doing it and what do you want out of it? And I've gone into a lot of projects and I've just wanted to do it because I like writing and I like editing, I like creating stuff, and that's fine. Um, and I've gone into other things with uh, you know, purely to make money, and that's fine as well. But um, I think you have to know, otherwise, you might waste a, a lot of time, and you can waste a lot of time on these things these days. Considering um, the massive variety in, uh, particularly motoring, well, it's, it's all forms, but we can see in motoring content. Mm. What um, what do you think? Uh, and, and again, this. I'm asking $64 million questions here. Mm. Um, what do you think the future is? How, how do you see things sort of m- moving towards? 
And I don't mean ultimately, but maybe in the next five years. Yeah. Let's, try, let's try and bring that down a little bit for you, make it a little bit easier. I think what's interesting is that you, I've perceived, and I think widely it's kind of acknowledged now, that people have started to appreciate the value of things a little bit more in the last few years. I think initially it was a free flow on the web where you know, people, the, the stuff that people used to download, I mean, I never really got into illegal downloading, but people I used to know at work and colleagues and friends would just download enormous amounts of things. And I've always felt a bit, you know, as someone who creates things and hopes to get paid for it, I always felt pretty twitchy about this kind of thing. But as an example of this, you know, I had a record player when I was young, when, you know, when I was a teenager. Um, but you know, I'm, I'm in my late thirties and vinyl was certainly dying out then. And then, you know, I, I put all my records in storage and never got them out again until, you know, the last few months where my wife bought me a record player and I've just I've got all my old vinyl back and I've been loving that again. And vinyl is a good example, I think, of how people have started to understand that physical things have a value and they're willing mm. to pay for physical things as well. And that's where magazines can succeed um i fear a little bit for uh newspapers and things like that I, I i just don't see how we can maintain a number of newspapers we have now given how you know reluctant people are to pay for them and those slightly more transient things like daily newspapers and, and maybe more regular magazines you know weekly magazines fortnightly magazines there's a huge cost associated with publishing anything like that and when it's available for free online, um, I'm not sure they can all survive. And I talked to, I probably talked to Gav a lot about this, and sort of other colleagues of mine about it's it's quite a galling thing as a journalist when you realise that not many people are really that bothered about how good the writing is that they consume. If it's good enough and it's free, I think a lot of people are happy with that. Um, so. It's about convincing people that there's enough value. And this is where I think you've started to see you know, smaller shops and sort of interesting little shops come back a little bit on high streets as well. Then um, people who run those shops and people who print independent magazines and things like that are never going to be millionaires. But I think there's enough of a niche um, for, for things of genuine value to, to succeed and thrive in journalism. I certainly hope so anyway. <laughs> Well, yeah, I think I think that's interesting. The, 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 it's what you were saying right at the end there. I I believe as well um, that people do appreciate stuff that's just slightly outside the mainstream. Mm. Um, but I also believe that uh, if it's done well, people will pay for that because it isn't something you can just get anywhere. Mm. Um, because you know, if it's news in whatever form people expect to be able to get hold of that for free in some way or another. Sure. So if you are, say you've got a website and you are trying to uh, get advertising revenue, that's your main uh, revenue income, uh, then it's very easy to see people getting sucked into that race to the bottom where they are the first to produce an item of news. Sure. And they are just primed for that. And that that will mean that stuff is not necessarily checked. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then it becomes a gossip site and things like that. And that, you know, if if that's what people are after, mm. that's fine. That's not something I personally am really that interested in. That's not my not my bag. 
but things like but just for the sake of argument, but petrol blog mm. that's outside the mainstream mm-hmm. yet being on Twitter and you see an article gets published or someone makes a comment about an article and you see lots of people then get involved in a conversation mm. and lots of people clearly love what's being produced because you know and, and but because it's being thought out and it provokes a conversation that you know i i think well i hope people would pay for that sure and i i mean I'm, i am randomly i am just picking petrol blog there because it, it 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 makes a good example of being slightly out there i'm not trying to push decisions that Cav's got to make in any way, by the way, I really am not because he's got to do what he's comfortable with. But I, I but I think there, that is an example of, you know, you, there are lots of people who, who read that stuff and who value it. And hopefully there would be enough proportion of that that would be prepared to support it in an income way. Sure. I mean, Petrol blog is a perfect example of how to create something of value, how to have a vision for something that is you know, outside of the mainstream and is sufficiently different. And any old idiot can come along and start a, a WordPress blog and just recycle stuff that they get off WordPress. And, um, you know, God knows we've all done it. You know, <laughs> I've certainly been guilty of that in the past. And it's, it's a difficult dynamic to kind of deal with because if you want volume, then you, you have to kind of acknowledge that you're going to have to churn stuff out sometimes. Um, however, um, you can do what Gav did and, and create something completely different. And the value of that is very visible in the amount of engagement, the, the sheer amount of engagement. And, and I have no idea, you know, about the stats or anything like that with Petrol Blog. But I, I can only uh, talk to what I perceive. You know, when I see on Facebook and Twitter how many people are talking to Gav and sharing it and have something interesting to say, and they're grateful that it's there. And it's mm. the perfect way of taking the same subject that everyone else is writing about, but just doing it differently. And it goes back to what I said earlier on, have a vision for something. And when you're writing articles, find out what's interesting, find out what the angle is. And, you know, Petrol Blog's motto is a different spin. And <laughs> it's it's a great example of, of um, how to do that kind of thing. And, you know, the value is evident for all. Yeah, I think you said something very key there. That is, that's the word I was looking for. People are grateful for it, mm. um, uh, and that's certainly the case there. I, I want to move now on to your car history, <laughs> uh, and then we'll come back to uh, your career and stuff. But your um, your car history. When did you pass your test? Ooh, I passed my test when I was, you know, um, what is it? Is it 16 when you can start learning to drive? I 17. Remember. <laughs> I passed it when I was 17. It took me three goes, mind. Um, um, but yeah, 17, and I, I learned to drive in a Fiesta, and God knows what, what Mark Fiesta that would have been, about three or four, maybe. Um, it's the same, the same model that the Puma was based on, because I recognized a lot of the switch gear when I bought my Puma. <laughs> <laughs> um so, yeah, and I learned in a Fiesta, but my dad had the Maestro at the time. So I was driving two, you know, extremely different cars. And that's really quite an interesting example between those two cars. Um, the Fiesta was incredibly easy to drive, and the Maestro was like driving a bloody tank around. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> that's that's what happened to British Leyland, basically. It was quite a good way to kind of perceive the differences between them. And then uh, I, I went to university. 
and you know i just i didn't drive another car probably for about five years after that um so uh work comes along as it does and my girlfriend at the time had a corsa and i was driving that a lot and to go from driving a maestro which was probably i don't know 85 you know, plate whatever that was i can't even remember these days but to go from driving that maestro which had no power steering and was awkward and was a lump and you know it had a high speed of about 75 miles an hour so driving a, a brand new Vauxhall Corsa in about 2002 was just a quantum leap. <laughs> I can't describe <laughs> how different those were. Oh, if only Vauxhall had known that at the time, <laughs> the marketing material would have been so much more different. Yeah, yeah, well, they'll be splashing that all over their new literature, I would have thought. Um, <laughs> and then I got a job and I needed to buy my own car and I bought a, a colleague's Rover 200, and it, it was that, that kind of um, Honda, the, the Honda crossover where they kind of mm. both worked together. So it was that kind of last generation. No, it wasn't the second last generation of Rover 200s, I think. It was like a, a box, a three-box saloon kind of thing, yeah. um, small family car. And uh, I bought it for £180. <laughs> and it was an absolute wreck. <laughs> really. I was going to say, how much did it cost you? <laughs> yeah. And, um, yeah, I had it for about six months. And uh, what I remember most about it was that um, the guy who sold it to me was a friend, and he gave it to me for, you know, next to nothing because um, because it was a, a load of rubbish. Um, basically. <laughs> and then what I remember is the rear footwell was always full of water as if someone had tipped a basin <laughs> of water into it. So if you went around the bend or you accelerated quickly, which was impossible, or you braked quickly, which was also impossible, actually, the water would slosh around uh, in the back footwell. Nice. Yeah. So I took it in for an MOT. Why I did that? I don't know. Um, <laughs> and it almost sort of got about 50 yards away and the phone up and said, right, you've got to come and have a look at this. And they ripped up all the carpets and you could literally put your finger through the holes in, uh, the floor of the car. And I said, <laughs> probably, I don't know why I said this either, but I said something like, oh, is it worth fixing? <laughs> so, so some fellow who'd worked in a garage for 40 years just sort of looked at me with sort of pity in his eyes, basically. So that was the end of that. It got me to Chester and back about 100 times, which is all it needed to do. But that was the end of that was the end of my car career for about another five years because I just didn't need a car, fundamentally. And then along came a Ford Puma. Um, which I absolutely adored. Just an absolutely wonderful car, and you could. Are they as good as we are led to believe? If you've never driven one, um, yes. Um, okay. Absolutely. Um, you could do things in that car. Uh, just a a front wheel drive car, and mine was a one point four, which is you know not not even the the, the Puma that is renowned at all. Uh, the one point six and the one point sevens are the ones that car nuts go on about, but. It was so light, it was ridiculous, and you could go around corners. I mean, again, bear in mind that all the talk is going through the front wheels. You could give it some serious abuse, and I taught myself how to heel and toe in that car, and it, it could stand up to it. It really could. I think the kind of profile of the tyres had something to do with how drivable it was, but it was very light. Um, it was There was a, a revy little engine in it. And you, you felt so connected. I think that's the thing that I miss most about the Puma. 
you you got all sorts of feedback from it so you understood what the car was doing and what it was capable of and where the limits were and you, it was very low slung as well you know you were pretty low down in the car and um it, you were also had a quite a relaxed sort of driving angle as well and it felt a little bit it was a little bit evocative of you know the um little sports cars basically and it, it mm. wasn't really a little sports car but it it had enough about it that you could kind of pretend it was so i absolutely loved the puma and i put a lot of miles on the clock and it, it was a workhorse as well as something i could razz around in and i probably held on to it far longer than i should have and in the end it was <laughs> that was an absolute wreck as well and it i, I didn't didn't you uh keep us updated on social media when it finally left. I probably did. And I honestly felt like I'd, you know, um, I'd uh, taken a pet to the vets. Uh, when it, It's end of an era and all that. Yeah, it was. I had it for like six years or something like that. And it was an S-Reg. So it would have been getting on for, oh, I don't know how old would it have been, 16, 17 years or something. And um, a friend of mine from my cricket club, funnily enough, sold it to me. I always try to buy cars from friends. and um, oh, So they can become ex-friends. <laughs> <laughs> well, luckily that hasn't happened yet. Uh, oh, that's okay then. You go into it, I think if you go into it with your eyes open, uh, then it's okay. Um, funnily enough, I, that actually rem- um, reminds me that in the midst of this, I bought a Mazda 3. Was it a 323 or was it a 626? It was a 626. Had it for a day and the clutch fell out, and I had to drive. I'd driven up to Hartlepool because I was working up in the northeast at the time, and there, there was a weird automatic gearbox. In, I hadn't got out about four gears, and it wouldn't go above second gear. And I, oh. I'd bought it in Liverpool, and it, again through a friend of mine who was a car dealer. God bless him. He was doing me a favour, and he, he got it to me for a song. And at the time, I just needed a car, and I had about fifteen hundred quid. And I said to him, "Look." I need a car which is going to give me trouble-free motoring for a year. That's all I'm... <laughs> so I had that for a day. Uh, the, clutch, the clutch was knackered, and I had to get it back. He said, I was in Hartlepool, and he was in Liverpool. It's about 150 miles away. And he said, if you get it back to Liverpool, I can get you all of your money back. Because, you know, he got it from someone who he had a relationship with. Um, so bear in mind, I couldn't go above about 40 miles an hour. I had to plan a route, and I, I should have mm. I should have live blogged this or done something like that. I had to get back, avoiding um, anything but B roads between Hartlepool on the northeast coast and Liverpool. So that was fun, and that took about six hours. <laughs> One of the more sort of hair raising, bemusing, and hilarious kind of episodes of my life, and it did feel like it was in Top Gear episode. So. I got rid of that, and then sort of I'd got rid of it to replace the Puma, but I kept the Puma on a little bit more, and then the Puma went to the great scrapyard in the sky, um, and I now own a Honda Accord. I've reached that age in life where uh, if a car starts and it doesn't give me too many problems, I'm pretty happy with it. And you know, everyone in kind of motoring knows that Hondas tend to be bulletproof, so um, I. I got it for an absolute song and I've looked after it and, you know, I just love a Honda and it's a very petrol bloggy kind of thing to say to admire something for its sort of efficiency and mm. it just keeps working. And They get to a certain point in age mm. and the, uh, I think with a car 
and then the the fact that it's is pretty much trouble free <laughs> is a glorious thing. <laughs> whereas whereas up to that age, it's going. Well, it's a bit dull, isn't it? But then there's, I don't know what the point is because I think it's different for each car. But after that point, then it is glorious because it is dull in a but it works way. Yeah, you can really revel in that at a certain time in your life. Um, and, uh, I, I mean, I, I still get pest cars to drive, you know, um, thank goodness. So I can kind of I can kind of express my desire to kind of, um, you know, drive different cars and experience new things and exciting things through, you know, driving a manufacturer's car from time to time. And it's enough for me. And uh, I, I, live, I live in an area where you can't really have you know, the car's on the road. So um, I very nearly bought a Porsche 944. I, w- I was, you know, very, very close indeed to, to making the purchase. I'd done my research. I knew which one to get, and they're not going to depreciate anymore. And this was about five years ago, and I just couldn't bring myself to do it because I knew I was going to have to park it on the road or put it in a garage, you know, a lock-up garage, you know, miles away. And I just thought, if I put it in a garage, I'll never drive it. If it's out on the road, you know, some scrotal stand on it or knock the wing mirror off or something. Mm. So that's as close as I've ever got to, you know, to proper sort of car journalism. You know, it's it's almost like that kind of you must buy an Alfa Romeo thing. I don't really have any interesting cars in my in my past. They're interesting <laughs> to me, but um, you know, I don't think I'll be writing a book about any of them anytime soon. <laughs> Okay. Well, what uh, just just for completeness, um, what is the uh, model uh, Accord that you have? Um, it's what in terms of what spec or engine or yeah, spec it's, engine. Uh, yeah. It's two liter petrol, so um, you know I can probably burn most people off at the lights if it comes to it. Um, <laughs> it's yeah, it's a really really nice petrol, very smooth, very refined, and a really nice development of torque um and it's it's uh, it's just uh whatever the sort of the lowest trim was so it hasn't even got cruise control or anything like that on it but it was such a good example of it um that uh i couldn't ignore it uh, so i could have hung around a bit longer i could have gone for 2.5 but a couple of people warned me off 2.5s uh and uh yeah it's just a boring sort of battleship gray honda but you know that's that's the sort of Aristotelian Honda. You know, it's like the perfect Honda. If you say this, <laughs> I've got a Honda, the one you're imagining is the one that I've got. <laughs> Excellent. Um, right, so if we go back to your um, your career history now, mm. uh, when we left off, leapt off and started getting a little bit philosophical about <laughs> writing, etc., you said that you were writing uh, for a no. Was I correct in this? Uh, a manufacturer's website, or was this just a car website? No, it was just a car website. Okay, car website. So, um, how long were you there, and what did you move on to next? Um, well, I started in in two thousand and six for a website called. Well, it wasn't a website then. It was motortalk.com, It was called, mm-hmm. um, and it was part of a lead generation website in Liverpool. It was just a very small and sort of exciting company to join when I joined it. Um, and uh, I was there for five or six years in the end. And um, when I joined, it Motor Talk didn't really exist. I think there were a few articles on there and sort of realized that they needed 
for reasons of search engine optimization um, to to have content on there because you get more people coming to your website if you've got good content on it. So we spun it off into a different website, and I kind of went through uh, almost like a kind of accelerated version of you know how a, a car website or magazine comes into being because none of the manufacturers knew anything about us and didn't have any other writers apart from me and. You know, I hadn't been on any car launches or anything by that point, so I had to try and forge relationships with car manufacturers and I had to learn all the sort of etiquette of being on car launches and how to ask for cars and how to relate to manufacturers. And at the same time, we were building the website in sort of lots of different ways, and it was essentially a kind of a what car or parkers kind of level of content because we wanted people to land on our website who were looking to buy a car and then um basically um they would give their details to us we would sell their details to a, a number of manufacturers or dealerships or brokers um and they would get in touch with a good price and you know theoretically the original reader would buy the car so it was part of a fairly complex kind of setup and by the time i left it was a fully fledged website and we we were doing video reviews and uh, don't, we weren't podcasting or anything like that, but we were, you know, I had a lot of, we did a lot of car reviews and I was, you know, I went all around Europe on car launches and stuff like that. And, you know, it, I left it in what I thought was fairly good shape and it's subsequently become Car Keys. And people are probably kind of familiar a little bit with these names around the web and, you know, it, it's still, it's still doing all right as far as I can tell. And, um, you know, a few people who I employed are still working there. So, you know, good luck to them, and I'm glad uh, that that's still going. But um, five or six years of that for me was enough. I'm quite an impatient person, and you know, I want to be doing different things all the time. So I went off and did something else. So did you move uh, more into another motoring um, I, outlet? I be- is, that, is that the technical term we should be using now? <laughs> yeah, well, quite. I since then pretty much since then i've worked for a magazine called professional manager magazine which is the official magazine of the chartered management institute and i write all their copy and it's it's kind of targeted at people with fleet managers or business user choosers so i write a lot of fleety kind of stuff mm-hmm. these days and i write a column in that and which is you know my thoughts on something hopefully interesting and, and i do some car reviews as well but at the same time i started a business in liverpool called sevenstreets.com with a, a couple of colleagues and that's kind of leisure and lifestyle and food and arts and all that kind of stuff and we made a bit of a fist of that and we did a, a printed uh, magazine which was out in liverpool as well and I, i'd like to think that seven streets was you know the kind of petrol bloggy in the way that people loved it and you know it was different and and all that kind of stuff, but mm-hmm. we could never really make enough money out of it to make it a worthwhile proposition. Not something we could do full time anyway. Mm-hmm. So around that time, I started teaching as well um, at uh, different universities, and uh, for a few years, I, I kind of did motoring and I did you know whatever other freelance work I could find, and I did teaching and I, I ran businesses in Liverpool, um, and I've slowly kind of focused on teaching to the exclusion of most other things but i still i I still like cars i'm still interested in cars and if i can find someone who will pay me to write about that then you know i will i'll probably keep doing it as long as as long as i'm able to right just before we get on to the quick fire questions Mm -hmm. something i wanted to ask you as well um when we were 
talking about uh, the shape of content that is created now. Is there any particular aspect of that that you dislike as a consumer of the content? I, I... I don't like dishonest content <laughs> and, uh, okay. you know, that, that's, we could very easily veer into, um, more philosophical matters again here, but this, this is something that it's, it seems to me is means that journalism is going to become more and more important. Um, but, but only if it's good journalism. Um, and you know, we, we live in very strange times. I was reading something earlier on where, um, Donald Trump is, is arguing with, the world seemingly about how many people were at his inauguration and this has been sort of in the news because there's two different pictures one of obama's first inauguration um and there's, there's a picture of trump's inauguration from the other day and you can see just by the naked eye that there are wildly different amounts and that there's many more at obama's um inauguration and trump has spokesman has come out and said no no that's that's totally untrue and you know, people are lying and it's fake news and blah, blah, blah. But there's photographs. It's just photographs. And then mm. Trump's spokeswoman, uh, Kellyanne Conway, I think she's called, came out today and said, well, um, he's not, we're not lying. We're just communicating alternative facts. And it, this, <laughs> this alternative facts sort of fascinates and appalls me. It terrifies me as well. And if people don't know, if people can't tell a difference between what's true and what's not, everything falls apart. So the value of journalism is hopefully becoming very clear to people. Um, and it's very easy to um, to be conned by fake news as well. Um, so that's the kind of... But it's but you see, this it went, I know we're slightly off topic here from motoring, but mm. um, fake news has always been a thing. Arguably. It's, it's, yeah. it's always been a thing. It's the fact that it can be delivered in such a way that people want to believe it. The problem is that with with fake news is that if you do it in the if you want it to get uh, passed around and accepted as real news, you do it in such a way that enough people who want it to be true pass that on. Yeah. And by passing it on, it's like an endorsement. Well, it, whether you like it or not, it's an endorsement. I think. Yeah. Yeah, uh, and that's that's a problem. I mean, we've all, we've always had uh, newspapers and magazines run by very rich people who want a particular viewpoint to be put out. Mm. You know, and that could be argued that's fake news. Absolutely, yeah. And I, I... So, so we've always had those problems. Uh, I just think that um, the fact that uh, through sites like Facebook or things like that that people can just pass out uh, an article that doesn't necessarily go through the filter of a uh, recognised, respected publication such as a uh, the BBC News or uh, Autocar or something like that, you know, whatever whatever that item is, mm-hmm. and then gets passed around and everyone goes, oh, look at this. Yeah, I oh, I suspected that of them. <laughs> and pass it on, you know, because, oh, that's that's... That's good enough. I thought they'd be that sort of person. So, yeah, I'll accept that as true. I agree with you that it is now very important that um, journalists, all all types of whatever journalism they're into, need to make sure that they are able to communicate the facts in such a way that people are prepared to uh, listen to it. There's, there's a real kind of almost existential challenge for the press and the media at the moment of 
how are you going to remain relevant in the face of the kind of disruption which is going to come from, well, come from bloggers or people like that and whose stuff can be amplified by um, social networks? And 10 years ago, you know, when I started entering the, the motoring media, you know, I, I didn't get the time of day from a lot of journalists because they knew I wrote for a website and, and they literally wouldn't talk to me because they didn't like people who wrote for websites and they thought it. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've heard that a bit. Uh, and, you know, I've been lucky. OK, I've not been on many uh, events, but I've been lucky enough not to have ever encountered that. But I have heard that of um, a few people who've been on this show, but also people I've uh, chatted to elsewhere. And that's, that amazes me, um, mm. frankly. I mean, I, I know it's probably driven from a sense of fear by people. Yeah. It's one of the things um, that I, I think that the motoring press need to get their head around uh, is that... Uh, and I think many do, you know, don't get me wrong. I'm not, this isn't a, everybody's hasn't got this button down. They don't understand this. They, many, most people do, but it's that uh, cars are quite a niche thing in, in the UK's cultural uh, interests. And on top of that, getting down to specific nitty gritties like we do in this little corner of the internet <laughs> is even more of a niche on that. Mm. The audiences are not actually that massive. I mean, you look at uh, what is now the Grand Tour or what was to the old new Top Gear. Mm. They had massive audiences, but they were an entertainment show that happened to use cars. Absolutely, yeah. You know, Fifth Gear is no more now, and they were more of a car program that did some entertainment bits. Mm -hmm. We have to be realistic that what the extent of an audience that we can attract is limited. Mm -hmm. which is why car manufacturers go to, for the sake of argument, Mumsnet or parenting bloggers or fashion blogger, vloggers because they have a wider audience and the people who are interested in, say, parenting blogs are not always or very rarely interested in understanding the talk of <laughs> this car. Whereas if someone says, but it's dead easy to get the um, pram in the back and I can get my the baby seat in and out and I don't break my back doing it, mm -hmm. that's more relevant to them. So we, we, you know, in this, in our corner, we need to appreciate that, accept it and either change what, how we deliver stuff or be prepared that, you know, so a car is going to be lent to someone who admits in the opening statement paragraph of their review they don't know how to drive. <laughs> it's it's undeniable, and what I think what we've seen in the last ten years, which the motoring industry was probably fairly well insulated from, as were most sort of industries, it's just been enormously disrupted, and um, the market is going to decide now fundamentally and. It's just something that, you, you know, you can rail against it, but there's very little point because it's it's not that closed garden anymore. And I remember one. No. I mean, you, you have to make your uh, – sorry, I've just cut you off there. I don't, yeah. but, but I think it's something we were discussing before I hit record. But I think you have to make yourself uh, attractive to a manufacturer in, enough – without compromising what your and this is again what we've talked about but your vision of what your your content is meant to be sure and if and if the two do not marry up then you have to accept you know this manufacturer will not talk to you or you will not get this type of car to review and pass on to to your to your um fans or to your subscribers and you just go 
that's fine. You either have to be grown up about it and go, that's fine, because that's not what we're about, or, well, do I need to look at this and think, actually, I do want to change how what is produced so that I can do that and I can provide that because that's what my audience wants. And, and I think you have to look at it in that sort of way. Well, yeah, if, either way, there's nothing that you can do about it. If, if someone says to you, I'm afraid we can't lend you a car, then you know, that's the end of that conversation until unless yeah. well, until such a time that perhaps you can come up with a different and stronger proposition. Um, I, I, I sympathise with um, people who run press fleets because you know, how on earth do you pick out who might be valuable to you and who isn't? And you know, there were probably, probably some obvious decisions as to who you will or won't lend a car to, but there's probably a big mass right in the middle where it's very unclear what the benefit to lending a car to someone is. And someone, uh, a PR once told me they cost about a thousand pounds. You know, a, yeah, to, I've heard that. Yeah. As a baseline, you know, to give any car to anyone for a week in terms of looking after it and insurance and getting it delivered and taken back and or you know everything in between. And that's, you know, that's a huge amount of money if you don't think you're going to get anything back from it. And I remember when I started sort of gaining a bit of a foothold in the industry with Motor Talk, probably about 2008, 2009, there was certainly some more forward thinking. That's maybe a slightly judgmental way of putting it, but some... um, More open. Yeah, some press officers were more open to the internet and you know different platforms and new people and younger people coming in and and doing different things and interesting things with their cars and um we were talking you know before we came on air about my pitch to tesla to get a model s now if i was just robin brown i was just blogging for robinbrowncars.co.uk not that there is such a thing don't look for it but if there were i'm sure they would have looked at me twice but i've got a, a magazine and i can make a case to them but i think probably what it what got me that car that that loan of a model s was i put something interesting together and if i think if you can say to someone here's the value you know here's the readership of you know who's going to listen to this and these people are engaged with automotive or motoring of cars in some way shape or form but also here's what i want to do with it and here's a demonstration that i know what i'm talking about and then um i think that should be a strong proposition regardless of where you come from um, mm-hmm. So I sympathise with with the press officers, but I also think that there are opportunities out there, um, you know, to kind of diff- well, what's the word I'm looking for? Just to kind of go with some different channels and to get some different coverage because experiment, experiment because yeah, disruption can be a bad thing in lots of ways, but it can be a positive thing um, as well. It can, you know, in theory. The problem is with a lot of these things is that uh, whoever they're answering to wants it quantified. Mm. And and often, I mean, there are some basic things that you can quantify, but often you can't quantify everything. Um, this is more, you know, it is more of a, oh, but there's a good vibe to what they do. And that's, sort of, and that's difficult to portray in a document to people in a meeting and go, right, this is the thing. This is why we think we should try these people out now or, you know, this channel out or this industry, you know. You know, here we go with uh, uh, beauty vloggers. Yeah, I, we, I, I get. That. We're after their audience, okay. and, you know, and 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 it 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 must be tricky to uh, to to step outside the prescribed. This many unique views, this much reach with Twitter, this much reach with Instagram, you know, and that sort of stuff. Mm. Um, and it, and if if people are prepared to look outside that, it it must be tricky for them. 
it must it must be tricky but uh you know th- this is a creative industry and <laughs> i would say that it's 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 probably your job or it's probably someone's job to look at potential opportunities and how to engage potential buyers in different ways um and uh, so you know as with anything a- any new potential threat is a potential opportunity and vice versa yep. and you know i I just I found myself wishing, you know, when I was more engaged with the industry, that there were more people willing just to to do something a bit more interesting with their cars and not just, you know, send it out to the regional press where you know you're going to get 400 words of seven out of ten. Basically, <laughs> this is something that Gav and I probably talked about, and it's you know to our irritation. But um, you know that there is you can you can adopt a fairly cynical view of the industry, you know, which is that. We're very lucky to receive cars from people, and uh, no one has ever said to me, "You've got to give us a good review." Um, and uh, no one has ever kind of implied that, but I'm sure it is implied in certain situations. So you get this; it goes back to value. What I was talking about earlier on, how if what you're creating doesn't have anything of value, doesn't have anything interesting to say then in actual fact, what's the what's the point? You know, what's the actual value of that? So I think it goes beyond metrics. I think it goes beyond, you know, 15,000 downloads and all this kind of stuff. Mm. Um, and I think that's how you can reach, you know, new audiences potentially. There's only ever going to be a finite audience. Um, but, um, you know, writing uh, and editing has got to be done with wit and flair and creativity. So... I think it's done for reason oh, the, the marketing. <laughs> the, I was hoping you wouldn't say well, that. <laughs> well, I've, I've, you know, dug my own grave there, haven't I? <laughs> well, I, I think that's a, that's an excellent way to um, round that up. Um, and thank you very much for being prepared to explore those. Um, oh, it was a pleasure. Those little aspects. Uh, I'd like to move on to the quickfire questions. Okay. And uh, I'm going to say to myself, because I fail every week, uh, but uh, I am to ask you the question. You will answer the question with your answer, and I will move on to the next question. And I will not then interject with "ah, but" or anything like that. Oh, <laughs> Otherwise, we could be here all night. That's and... my new challenge then. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I will start with the first one, which is what currently excites you about the motoring world. Oh, um, mobility. Uh, is what's fascinating to me about the motoring world at the moment. Uh, and I've written a lot about this in in my professional motoring outlets. About how I- Okay, then. Right. Now, uh, I've ruined it already. Um, <laughs> I've ruined it already, but it was one of the uh, predictions I had for 2017 is that, that we would get flooded with uh, buzzword bingos, and mobility was one of the words that was that. <laughs> what do you understand... Or do you think mobility means? Right. He is what I think. Um, and this, this has been pitched to you know, uh, fleet audiences when I've been writing about it. I think you know, in the past we saw getting around as I have a car. I think going forward it will be you know, I, I have a journey to make. And I think we'll be fairly uh, ambivalent about how that happens. I think it, we may own cars. Um, you know, in 10, 15 years, I think it's equally possible that very few people will own a car in a way that we do now. Maybe they'll have short-term rentals, but if we can, well, and I'm aware that there are sort of huge consequences, both positive and negative, to autonomy and things like that. But 
if it can be made to work, I just don't understand why, unless you loved cars and you loved driving, which many, many people do not, that you would sink £20,000 into something that depreciates like a lead balloon, you don't use for 23 and a half hours a day, um, and you've got to sell you know, after a few years, and you've got to service all the time, you've got to put petrol in it and all this kind of stuff. You've got to park it you know, when there's no parking. I don't understand why the majority of people would do that um, if there are solutions to not owning a car. And that's what I mean by mobility, the sort of choice to do your journey in a way other than doing it in the car that you have bought. Okay, I can get on board with that. <laughs> if only the car manufacturers knew that. Um, <laughs> what currently worries you about the merchant world? Uh, mobility. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me what you think. No. <laughs> um, can I expand on that or is it? Yep, yep, please do. I, I think that there are huge challenges ahead and you know how the motoring industry sort of deals with this, I don't know. And if mobility happens as a way that I kind of outlined earlier, and I'm not saying this, is, this should happen and I'm all for it because I'm well aware that there's, there's huge potentially negative consequences to all of this kind of stuff. But, you know, we're going to see a, a sea change if that happens in 10 to 15 years, kind of like in the way that we've seen media be completely disrupted when something else, which no one really, well, maybe people did foresee it, but they just didn't adapt to it. So when something else comes along, but I could say lots of things. I mean, I'm, I'm rare in the car industry in that, you know, I, I worry significantly about climate change and the environment and things like that. And we can't ignore the the fact that, that uh, burning petrol um, contributes hugely to um, environmental damage. So, um, you know, I, I don't see a way out of that personally, but we, we can't ignore it either. So I'm, I'm going to cheat and say those two things. Okay, that's right. I can accept that. <laughs> <laughs> I interrupted you after the first question. I'm, so I'm not not breaking it. all the rules so far. So Yeah, let's go for it. Uh, what's been your favourite car to drive and why was that? Um, Mm. Can I what, can I have one or can I have what more than one? <laughs> you can you can pick as many as you like. The Ford Fiesta ST in recent years is the most purely pleasurable car I've ever driven. I think the sliced bread car, just absolutely amazing. Um, so much fun, <laughs> and I drove it at SMMT around the hill route many, many, many times, cackling like a lunatic. And I can't is remember. that where you got warned? Yes, it is where I got warned. Yeah, they were out to get me. That <laughs> admittedly, I was really driving a bit fast, but you know, um, I always feel like there's this fragile kind of truce at SMMT where everyone basically goes, "Don't don't drive too fast," and then all the journalists go, "Yeah, right." As <laughs> if I'm not going <laughs> to drive this car really quickly around this wonderful alpine route. So uh, the Fiesta ST is just such an amazing car. I love driving it. Um, other than that, I'd, I'd probably just go back and say things like um, at Heritage, driving days from Ford and Vauxhall I've attended. I love driving old cars. Oh, um, hang on. I drove a VX, um, oh, the little Vauxhall two-seater thing. What's that called? VX 220, is it? I can't even remember what it's called. My mind's gone blank. The, the one that was uh, sort of twin brother with the Lotus. Um, yeah, I think so. Ish. Uh, yeah, my, it's, it's totally gone out of my head now. It had the vertical, two vertical exhaust pipes. 
Oh, Sorry, I'm being a bit nerdy though. <laughs> That's okay, <laughs> But I'm just, I'm just, I've, I've got a hundred things in my head I want to try and communicate, and that's kind of what rose to the surface. But I, dro- I drove an old um, Ford Sierra, which you know was 35 years old or whatever it was. Now, that was just an amazing experience. I love driving, you know, those 80s cars, and it goes back to what I was saying at the start about those cars that I loved when I was little, and to be able to drive them is just a fascinating experience. But it's also a massive treat as well. Okay. Uh, what car would you like to own next? Ooh, yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, what would I like? I'd love to have a, a 944, and I probably will at some point in my life. And the same might also be said of things like Rover SD1 and Ford Capri and, you know, all those cars, which I loved when I was little. Um, I, I, I came very close to buying a Fiesta ST, so um, I'd, just, I'd be lying if I said anything other than a Fiesta ST. Okay. Oh, or a Honda S2000. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I very nearly bought a Honda S2000 as well. No, that's not a bad choice. <laughs> uh, what's your favourite road to drive on? Um, mm, I mean, I, you know, I live in Liverpool as well, as you know. Um, so, I, you know, there's so many great roads in North Wales that, that I could mention. Um, but I'm... Don't, because people will go there then. That's true. Yeah, terrible, <laughs> terrible. The speed cameras everywhere. Um, there's a number of roads in, in the Yorkshire Dales, however, with which I'm also extremely familiar. And um, so that no one goes there, I'm not going to say where they are, where they are. but um, I love driving around the Yorkshire Dales. So much demanding... Um, naturally kind of challenging roads to drive on. So, yeah, I'd love driving around Yorkshire. Excellent. Uh, what is the most pointless optional extra you've had the misfortune to experience? Ooh. I remember driving the Beat, the original, not the original Beetle, but when Volkswagen brought it back. That, that's got a vase or something in the central console. Yep. That was a big selling point, wasn't it? Well... You could put a fresh flower in every day. Apparently it was, yes. I'm not sure how much of a deal maker that was. Um, ooh, what, I'll tell you what I don't, what I hate. I hate lane departure warnings. I absolutely bloody hate them. I turn them off every single time I get in a car because in natural driving, you're constantly breaking <laughs> white lines on roads for very good reasons. Um, mm. And uh, it drives me absolutely mad when you get in a car and it starts bleeping at you and starts buzzing things and things light up. I'm, I have a bit of a love-hate relationship with um, sort of active safety driving aids because, you know, if you like driving, then they're kind of absolute anathema. At the same time, you've got to appreciate what they do for you sometimes. Um, but, yeah, I know that doesn't really count, but um, I just hate lane departure warnings. Okay. Uh, who do you think I should talk to after you? Well, let me let me see now. I think, <laughs> well, you know, I'm, I'm going to wish you... Uh, not not a threat. You know what's it, what when you know when boxers call someone out. I'm calling out ultimatum. Yeah, well, it could be that. Yeah, once again, I'm issuing an ultimatum to Gavin Braithwaite Smith to come on here <laughs> and talk about cars in his own inimitable way. Um, but if you can't get him, you know, and he's, he's you know he's not an easy man to track down sometimes. Then uh, John Slavin or Slavin. Yeah, you know, I'm not actually sure how you pronounce it, but he'd be great to get on. 
Okay. I shall add him to the hit list. <laughs> it's it's not as sinister as it sounds. No, that yeah, that we we made that sound rather violent potentially. Yes. <laughs> okay, well, thank you very much for being on. But um before before we completely wrap up, I'd like to um give you the opportunity to let people know what are the best ways to follow you uh, and keep up with what you do um and possibly uh, ask you about how wonderful your accord is. <laughs> um, well, um, Robin Brown seventy eight is me on Twitter, uh, and, and I suspect that's the. I think that's the kind of medium where you know, it seems to be a knowledge that that's where strangers can interact and introductions can happen, all that kind of thing. I don't. Yeah, okay, I mean, I'll, I'll keep your address off the uh, <laughs> off this thing so they don't knock on your door. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, if you see, you know, if you see a Battle Grey Honda Accord around Liverpool, then you'll know who to follow. Um, but yeah, Robin Brown sent me. I don't. I feel I should, you know, issue a caveat. I don't really tweet that much about cars anymore. I tweet about all sorts of things. So if if you want to hear about my views on journalism, politics, cars, well, let's be fair. Our chat has covered. A wide variety of topics. That's true. I hope I haven't dragged you too far away from you know core core issues. Basically, I feel like- no, no, no. The the point was to to talk to you, and uh, yes, there are distinct car interests. But yeah, no. The point was to talk to the people and find out more about people. So um, you know that that was absolutely perfect. Wonderful. Well, it, it it's been an absolute pleasure and and an honour. So thank you very much for having me on. No, it's been brilliant. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks once again to Robin for coming on Rearview and chatting to me. I hope you found our conversation as fascinating as I did. If you want to suggest someone I should ask to come on this show, please do get in touch. If you use the hashtag RearviewPod, we'll be guaranteed to see it in Motoring Podcast Towers. To get in touch with me directly, search for Crack Windscreen on Twitter. And if you like to keep up to date with motoring news, opinions and reviews, go try out our sister show, which is the Motoring Podcast. I'd like to ask you to go leave a rating and review, preferably on iTunes. It really makes a difference to me and helps others find the show. If you have already left a rating and review, then please do go and share the show with others because we want more and more people to listen to this as it helps us get more and more guests. So until next time, that was Robin Brown. I've been Andrew Clues and safe my train.